We are back. It's always fun to talk about things related to space exploration, and who better to do it with than Matt Kaplan. We, we certainly wish him well in his future endeavors. And we'll be, hope we'll be talking to him and his posse and the, his successor uh, in, in, in the months to come. Several days back, I did what I do on a periodic basis, which is grab a copy of the essays of Isaac Asimov and uh, plow through them, because no matter how many times I've read them, they're still good. One article he wrote about back in 1989 was about the changing distance between Earth and Mars. This is pretty relevant for today, actually, because Mars reaches opposition tonight. Tonight being the date this show airs, it's December 7th, 2022. Curiously, not only does Mars reach opposition, meaning it's exactly in line between the Sun, the Earth, and Mars, but by coincidence, so is the Moon. A full Moon will, in fact, pass right in front of the planet Mars this evening. And if you've got a small telescope or pair of binoculars, we suggest you go out after dark and check it out. Should be hard to miss. Find the moon, find Mars, comma, keep watching. But looking back at our archives, one of the fun episodes we had on this program was a show we aired uh, every October 30th for several years based upon Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds 1938 radio broadcast that, that caused panic in New York and New Jersey. Asimov told the tale, writing in 1989, about how he was once asked in an interview of his, of his interpretation of what that was all about, the 1938 Orson Welles broadcast. And apparently Asimov answered as follows. Isn't it sad that you can tell people that the ozone layer is being depleted, that the forests are being cut down, and the deserts are advancing steadily, that the greenhouse effect will raise the sea level 200 feet, that overpopulation is choking us, that pollution is killing us, and the nuclear war may destroy us, and they yawn and settle back for a comfortable nap. But tell them that the Martians are landing and they scream and run. Noted Asimov, that statement was edited out and did not appear on the air. What struck me about it is it was 1989, and he was talking about the greenhouse effect raising sea levels 200 feet and overpopulation choking us. These several decades later, both those statements seem truer than ever. And speaking of scary things related to the ocean, and how's that for a segue? We were struck by the headline in the New York Times a few days back, noting that a rogue wave had struck a cruise ship heading down to Antarctica and killed a passenger. The cruise line has not said how the passenger was killed as of this point. But as someone who has contemplated taking a trip down to Antarctica, which you pretty much need to do on a large vessel, uh, well, I, I'm a little intimidated by this whole rogue wave thing. The piece in the New York Times notes that rogue waves are unpredictable. They're typically twice the size of surrounding waves, and they often come from different directions than the surrounding wind and waves. The ship in question, by the way, is 665 feet long and can carry 375 eight passengers, and 256 crew members. Like many a teenage boy, I, I was intrigued by my read of Contiki back in the day. And it always struck me that uh, Thor Heyerdahl described how the fact that they were on a balsa raft that would ride over the top of waves saved them again and again. As noted on this program previously, Mr. Heyerdahl went on to a long and lengthy career promoting crackpot theories of, of how man sailed around on the high seas. 
And speaking of paddling around on the high seas, there's a story coming out of Rapa Nui, Chile, better known to you as Easter Island, where a bunch of folks have set out to paddle on a canoe between Easter Island and its nearby neighbor of Hoki Mai, also known as, I think, um, Sala y Gomez Island. It's an interesting story. They got 12 athletes, nine people from Rapa Nui, two Chileans and one Hawaiian who were intent upon taking this 300-mile cruise across uh, the South Pacific. Of course, I was somewhat less impressed to realize that there's going to be a Chilean vessel accompanying the canoe, and they're going to swap crew members out. So yeah, they're doing it in groups of six who roll for about four hours, then be replaced by the next shift. I don't know, this takes, this takes some of the glamour out of it for me. This reminds me of a good friend who did quite a bit of paddling over in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, I think she has some level of expertise in this, and we'll see about bringing her on, on the show. Anyway, we're sure you probably were not overly distracted by this uh, quasi-sporting event of paddling around in the South Pacific. When? When? At the same time, we have the World Cup of football taking place. Of course, here in America, we know what they're really referring to is, is soccer. And we do confess on this program to not being fans of soccer. No, we're fans of playing soccer. It's a wonderful exercise. We just are not fans of soccer as a spectator sport. We still think they could fix it, you know, fix it so that you don't have endless scoreless ties. I I think it's a tribute to the American populace that we don't like scoreless ties. Out of curiosity, I looked it up. I looked up when the last time the National Football League played to a scoreless tie. And uh, when do you suppose that last happened? Never. Well, no, it's not, it's not quite never. My understanding is they actually, back in the early days of football, had many such contests. But the last one, the last one was in 1943. That's never to me. I understand. Anyway, I guess, I guess I'm going to try and make an effort to root for somebody in this thing. And we're just hoping that, you know, they can have contests that don't require penalty kicks so that somebody can go home a winner. And I guess I'm going to root for Portugal. Simply because Ronaldo, their star player, comes from the island of Madeira, and so does a portion of my family. Therefore, I presume Cristiano Ronaldo and I are cousins. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right, we're obviously starting with a bit of a slow ramp up in this particular segment, so why don't we take the time to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for rebranding with the announcement from the World Health Organization that the globally circulating virus that has been known as monkeypox will henceforth be called mpox. Why should that be, you ask? Well, according to the WHO, they're changing the name to make it less, quote, racist, unquote, and, quote, stigmatizing, unquote. 
And no, we are clueless as to how it is the term monkeypox could possibly be construed as racist. Specious, maybe. I don't know. We're puzzled. We can only speculate that some woke people must be involved in this somehow. And we would note, conversely, it was surely a bad week recently for compensation with the news coming out of Russia that Russian authorities have been consoling the mothers of soldiers killed in Ukraine with a cardboard gift pack of not one, but three handsome towels. God, that's worse than the first story. And worst of all may be the fact that it was surely an ugly week last week for public safety with the news that San Francisco's Board of Supervisors has voted to let the police department use robots to kill criminals. Yes, by an 8-3 to three vote, the SFPD will be enabled to arm the city's 17 robots with bombs that will reportedly will only be used, quote, in extreme circumstances, unquote, such as terrorism. Supervisor Hillary Ronan, one of the three no votes, said this is opening up a Pandora's box that could change our society in a significant way. I don't know. I think she's just a bit of a worrywart. I have never known there to be any problems in software ever. In an item that combines a little bit of good and bad and ugly, we have this. Apparently 200 ice fishermen and fisherwomen had to be rescued from a chunk of ice that broke away and floated out into Minnesota's Upper Red Lake. Apparently the local sheriff's office has warned winter anglers that early season ice is very unpredictable. And let's go through a few stories that I guess we would just pluck from what we might call a news roundup. Over in the Hawaiian Islands, for the first time in 30 years, Mauna Loa has erupted. It's been spewing lava up to 150 feet in the air and sending a river of molten rock toward the Big Island's main highway. News reports keep referring to Mauna Loa as the world's largest active volcano, and I guess it is. It is noted that this eruption contains a variety of hazards, including volcanic gas, volcanic smog, fine ash, and particles that locals call Pele's hair, named after the Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes and fire. Evidently, gas bubbles in the lava can burst and rapidly cool, creating sharp glass strands of molten lava that are about 0.001 millimeters thick and up to several feet long. It is noted that Pele's hair blows downwind and can lodge in human hair. Man, my advice is to stay upwind. And how about the fact that Stuart Rhodes, leader of the far-right Oath Keepers Militia, got convicted for his activities on January 6th, convicted, in fact, of seditious conspiracy. I did not realize it, but apparently Mr. Stuart Rhodes was educated at the Yale School of Law. Anyway, it doesn't seem too much doubt about the fact that he was engaging in seditious conspiracy. My question is, uh, why haven't we indicted the guy that organized the whole seditious conspiracy yet? But I guess I'll let that one go today. And note instead that the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom ruled unanimously last week that Scotland cannot hold a second referendum on whether to break from its more than 300-year-old union with England. The Scots rejected independence in 2014 by 55%, but the ruling Scottish National Party believes they changed their mind after Brexit. Evidently, 62% of the Scots voted to remain in the EU, and many Scots now want to rejoin it. Yeah, Brexit was dumb, but then again, breaking up Great Britain so that Scotland can rejoin the EU seems kind of wacky too. 
And in other international news, it turns out that the U.S. has said this past week that it would ease sanctions against Venezuela and would allow Chevron to resume pumping oil for export to the U.S. only. In this deal they're working out, I gather, no profits from the sale can go to Chevron's local partner, which is Venezuela's state-owned company, but instead they must use to pay off Venezuela's creditors in the U.S., I have a sneaking suspicion that the Venezuelan government is going along with this because they're going to plan to get a piece of the action. That's just my suspicion. And speaking of the fossil fuel industry, which I guess we were at least in part, here's a very disturbing story also from the New York Times, authored by David Gellis. Let me just quote from it. When a lawsuit was filed to block the nation's first major offshore wind farm off the Massachusetts coast, it appeared to be a straightforward clash between those who earn their living from the sea and others who would install turbines and underwater cables that could interfere with the harvesting of fish. The fishing companies challenged federal permits for the Vineyard Wind Project, and they made a video featuring bearded fishermen with those distinctive New England accents. Turns out, however, the financial muscle behind this fight originated thousands of miles from the Atlantic Ocean in dusty oil country. The group bankrolling the lawsuit was the Texas Public Policy Foundation, an Austin-based nonprofit backed by oil and gas companies and, what do you know, Republican donors. With influence campaigns, legal action, and model legislation, the group is promoting fossil fuels and trying to stall the American economy's transition toward renewable energy. It is upfront about its opposition to Vineyard Wind and other renewable energy projects, making no apologies for its advocacy work. In Arizona, the Texas Public Policy Foundation campaigned to keep open one of the biggest coal-fired power plants in the West. In Colorado, it called for looser restrictions on hydraulic fracturing or fracking. And in Texas, the group crafted the first so-called energy boycott law to punish financial institutions that want to scale back their investment in fossil fuel projects, which... They produced YouTube videos. They make regular appearances on Fox and Friends and social media campaigns. And the group's executives have sought to convince lawmakers and the public that a transition away from oil, gas, and coal could harm Americans. They have frequently seized on current events to promote dubious narratives, pinning high gasoline prices on President Joe Biden's climate policies. Economists say that it's not the driver, or claiming that the 2021 winter blackout in Texas was the result of unreliable wind energy. It wasn't. Anyway, I was talking to one of my uh, uh, friends who is still a uh, MAGA-type individual, and I was struck by how he was quoting (laughs) that, you know, oil and gas are, are good. This is what we should be using. That's what it's there for. And now I think I know where he got it. The article quotes Jeff Clark, chief executive of Advanced Power Alliance, which is an Austin-based trade group for renewable energy companies. He said, when you look at their advocacy, it is consistently a false choice between being environmentally responsible and enjoying economic prosperity. They're against offshore wind, yet they spend decades advocating for offshore drilling. They're against subsidies, but only when it applies to renewables. They're for looser restrictions on fracking and drilling, but greater restrictions for solar and wind. In summary, this organization exists to defend fossil fuels from any threat to their market share. 
Back on Thanksgiving, Jason Isaac, an executive at the group, had tweeted, Today, I'm thankful to live in a high-carbon lifestyle and wish the rest of the world could too. Energy poverty equals poverty. Decarbonization is dangerous and deadly. The article concludes by noting that Isaac's remarks run counter to the overwhelming scientific consensus that the burning of fossil fuels is already making weather more extreme and if not quickly and sharply abated will lead to increasingly catastrophic floods, heat, storms, drought, and social unrest. Kind of like Isaac Asimov was alluding to back in 1989. Now it comes to the energy discussion, we promised we would do a little homework on tetrateanite, which was being touted as a possible manufactured compound to take the place of uh, rare earth permanent magnets. The original article that I read on this said that uh, this, this type of iron-nickel alloy was found only in meteorites, but uh, subsequent research shows that it actually has been found in terrestrial rock. And I'm sorry to say I'm not really able to come up with much of an answer for uh, the feasibility of manufacture of this material. The article in Wikipedia notes that it forms naturally in iron meteorites that contain taenite, different compound, that is slow-cooled at a rate of a few degrees per million years, which allows for ordering of the iron and nickel atoms. I'm pretty sure that the industrial <laughs> methods that they're looking at for manufacturing now uh, use a different strategy. And I'm equally positive, if this does work out, the manufacture of tetrateanite for permanent magnets, we're going to hear more about it in the not-too-distant future. I also stumbled in the last few days about an opinion piece in the Washington Post I, I, I feel the need to share. It was related to the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been described as the face of crypto. He's an MIT grad. And he charmed blue-chip investors into pouring $1.8 billion into his now-bankrupt crypto exchange, which, I didn't know this, had celebrities like Tom Brady, Stephen Curry, and Larry David appearing in its ads. Now notes Axios, SBE, as he is known, looks like a crook who is embezzling his own customers' funds to finance risky investments by the hedge fund he also controlled, Alameda Research. His stated dream, and that of most other crypto entrepreneurs, was for the industry to improve upon and supplant the world's existing financial infrastructure. In fact, behind the scenes, it was engaging in much of the same grift and leverage risk-taking that preceded the 2008 financial crisis. Anyway, Sam is now telling the world that he's down to his last $100,000. Now, earlier this year, of course, his estimated wealth had peaked at about $26.5 billion. And I just have a hunch, again, this is just a hunch on my part, that some of those billion dollars have been salted away in offshore tax shelters. That's just a guess on my part. But like the story of Elizabeth Holmes, I continue to be fascinated by how these folks are able to charm their way into giving really smart and rich people the notion that they should part with some of their wealth and give it to them. Anyway, the piece in the Washington Post I, I just have to quote from, article by Molly Roberts, uh, dated November 29th, was as follows. Amid all the bombshell revelations about fallen crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried, a seemingly trivial bit of information might tell us everything we need to know. He doesn't read books. 
If you're anticipating a caveat or qualifier, you're out of luck, as the FTX investors whose money SBF allegedly lost. I'm addicted to reading, a journalist said to the erstwhile multi-billionaire in a recently resurfaced interview. Oh yeah, SBF replied, I would never read a book, noted Molly Roberts. Now, there are plenty of people who don't read. This does not indicate that they're likely to end up accused of having robbed thousands of others of their fortunes in a speculative adventure, one that is part financial experiment, part Ponzi scheme. Some prefer to listen. Some prefer to do something else altogether. The thing is, the reason counts. Behold, then, SBF's reason. Quote, I don't want to say no book is ever worth reading, but I actually do believe something pretty close to that. If you wrote a book, you effed up. It should have been a six-paragraph blog post, noted Molly Roberts. Now, this is paragraph five of this column, so we're running short on worthwhile words. But this means-to-an-end worldview might be key to understanding FBF's character and his career. The point for SBF, it seems, isn't the book itself, but what he takes away from it. The instrumental knowledge that presumably he can gather more efficiently from a Sparks Note version of any opus than from the work itself. Anyway... Later in the piece, Robert circles back to note that let's go back to SBF and FTX. The bookkeeping that, according to the company's bankruptcy lawyer, was less sloppy than non-existent. The big bets that executives figured were only a liability if they lost. The lending of investors' funds to prop up a trading firm SBF also owned. You could argue these things are immoral in their own right. Yet, to SBF, they would only count as wrong if the ultimate outcome of them was likely to be wrong, too. What happened along the way, just like with those books not worth reading, don't appear to carry much water. Anyway, I think our takeaway from all of this is that if you're going to invest large sums of money with somebody, well, try to pick somebody that reads a book. Now, we've only got a few minutes left on today's program, so I don't have time to delve at length into something that I was quite flabbergasted at. A couple of days ago, I was looking up at my TV and all of these streaming services and all the things they offer and sort of stumbling through them when I came across a movie, which I'd not heard of, called Mr. Jones. It was about the terrible things that happened in the Ukraine back in the years of Joseph Stalin. The Mr. Jones in question was Gareth Jones. Gareth Jones had reported anonymously in The Times back in 1931, on the starvation in Soviet Ukraine and southern Russia. After his third visit to the Soviet Union, he issued a press conference under his own name in Berlin in March of 1933, describing the widespread famine in detail. We reported on this program a similar report by Malcolm Mugridge, who wrote in 1933 as an anonymous correspondent and appeared contemporaneously in the Manchester Guardian. Anyway, these two courageous journalists managed to thwart the Soviet secret police uh, surveillance and, and find their way to Ukraine to actually observe what was going on down there. And what was going on down there was that Joseph Stalin was confiscating the entire grain crop to sell it on the world market to pay for all of his uh, industrial development. The movie started out with the premise that that is what Stalin was doing, because in the beginning of the movie, they were showing how impoverished it was in the UK in the wake of World War I and how they had no money to invest in infrastructure, whereas over in the Soviet Union, Stalin appeared to have lots of dough to build new factories. 
I don't know whether it's is that cut and dried, that it was the Ukrainian grain sold in the world market that allowed these developments, but I, I intend to ask some people that know more about this than I do, and hopefully bring them on the show. The villain in that movie, well, well actually there's several villains in that movie, but I think the most uh, notable villain is Walter Durante. Durante went head-to-head with Gareth Jones and Malcolm Muggeridge to deny that things were uh, that bad down in the Ukraine. He was a winner of the Pulitzer Prize back in 1932 for his reporting on what was going on in the Soviet Union, which, to say the least, uh, does not stand up to scrutiny when looked back at. And I missed the story, but back in 2003, the Pulitzer Prize board took a look, and they spent six months in the process looking at Walter Durante's reporting from the Soviet Union to decide whether they were going to rescind his Pulitzer. To quote from their news release, In its review of the 13 articles, the board determined that Mr. Durante's 1931 work, measured by today's standards for foreign reporting, falls seriously short. In that regard, the board's view is similar to that of the New York Times itself and of some scholars who have examined his 1931 reports. However, the board has concluded there is not clear and convincing evidence of deliberate deception. And since the board couldn't decide this was deliberate deception, they let him keep his prize posthumously. Anyway, I've got a friend who's Ukrainian who no doubt knows a great deal about this. I'm going to see if I can coax him into talking with us about it. Anyway, in wrapping up here, I I want to add a fourth quote from that of former Vice President Thomas Marshall. On the program a few weeks back, we managed to cite no less than three quotes from Mr. Marshall. Most famously, of course, was, what this country needs is a good five-cent cigar. But I stumbled upon what Marshall had to say upon the death of Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt, in 1919, passed away in his sleep, which prompted Thomas Marshall, who was then the vice president, to say, Death had to take him sleeping, for if he'd been awake, there would have been a fight. And in one final word today on political fights, we have the news that Raphael Warnock was re-elected down in the state of Georgia. We know this will come as a severe disappointment to Senator Mitch McConnell, who is hoping the next House versus Senate flag football game would feature Herschel Walker in the backfield. Alas, it's not to be. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We want to thank uh, once again Matt Kaplan, a man who's produced 1,000 programs for Planetary Radio. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.